0: Amen. Well, praise the Lord. As we continue in John, I'm going to read, be reading from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is his day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. That means sent. So the man went and washed. And he came home seeing after Jesus escaped his critics at the temple in the previous chapter it says they they wanted to kill him somehow Jesus just kept upsetting people and they wanted to kill him again and it says he went walking through the city after he escaped and there he saw as he walked through Jerusalem a man blind from birth the disciples noticed the man too and they asked Jesus who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jewish theology in those days was pretty simple concerning illness or disease or tragedy. Someone was getting punished by God for something. So who's the guilty party? The man, the mama, the daddy, the unborn baby? Who, why, why did this happen? In those days, the Jewish theologians believed that even a fetus could sin, although I can't imagine how a fetus could sin in its mother's womb. But this man's blindness, they believe, had to be the fault of someone sinning. Why was he blind? You know, that question why still haunts us to this day, doesn't it? Why are babies born blind or born with spinal bifida? Why do children die of malnutrition? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why are there wars? Why do accidents happen or people get treated unjustly? And the general biblical answer to this is simple. We live in a fallen world. It is broken. Nature doesn't work right, which is why we have hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and drought and disease. Or in other words, what's happening to California. Humans are broken, which is why we self-destruct and have hate and racism and why our bodies age and die. This world was created to function justly and perfectly, but now it is a dysfunctional planet filled with misery of every kind. Let me be clear. God did not make the world this way. Human beings sinned and broke it. We blew up paradise, and the shrapnel is still flying everywhere. Everywhere, humanity reflects the effects of the fall. Now, a lot of suffering in this world, to be honest, is self-inflicted. A person who smokes for 20 years and gets lung cancer does not have to go, Why me? (laughs) That's a little too close. I whacked it in the first service, too, and it still stands. Anyway... (laughs) An alcoholic who, de- who develops cirrhosis of the liver doesn't have anybody to blame but themselves. But part of the fall is that people often suffer unjustly. Part of the fall is that people like Stalin and Mao Tung lived the last half of their lives in luxury and died in their own beds surrounded by the best doctors in their country. The other side of the unjustness of a fallen world is that people who have not hurt anybody get enslaved or starved or oppressed by unjust leaders everywhere. And on top of that, when Jesus came into this world and he called out his church, he said, I am going to send you into the world to bring another kingdom, another kingdom that this world has never recognized before. And he said, I got good news for you when you come and feed the hungry and clothe the naked, when you come sharing the good news of the gospel, the world is going to hate you. They hated me. You're not getting off any easier than me. A big part of the fall of this planet is reflected in how unfairly suffering is distributed. Or as the psalmist says, why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous so often get the short end of the stick? Jesus answers this question, why is this man born blind? And he surprises his audience. Jesus says that no one in the immediate vicinity is to blame for this man being born blind. Not his mama, not his daddy, not him. Very often, Jesus indicates suffering comes into our lives that has no direct relationship to anybody's sin except Adam and Eve's. This man's blindness did not happen because mom and dad or baby did anything wrong. It happened because we all live in a fallen world, and as so often happens, what we get nailed because we are in a fallen world. I hate to tell you this, but there is a randomness to injustice, a randomness to suffering. Sometimes people go, why did this happen? It's because you're on the planet Earth. That's why it happened. God, Jesus said, is punishing no one here. In fact, the opposite is about to happen. God is going to do a work here that you will never forget. What you're seeing with this man blind from birth is not God's judgment, but an opportunity to show God's heart and what he can do with broken human lives and what he intends to do with this entire planet one day. And you get a front row seat to see the light of the world at work. Ben Patterson wrote the best book on prayer I have ever read. And in it, he tells the story of Joel, his son. This was years ago, back in 1986, so it's a good 32 years ago. Back then, their son be- began to act strangely. He had Tourette's syndrome, but they didn't know what that was. He said, We noticed it first when he started playing soccer. At practice and during games, if the action was elsewhere on the field, he would stand at his position and look directly at the sun. It was painful to him, and we warned him, this can damage your eyes, but he couldn't seem to stop. Then came other things, things he didn't seem to be able to control. Blinking of his eyes, facial and body tics, contortions, jerks, ritual movements, random vocalizations, barking sounds, repeated clearing of the throat. And for a while, he could barely suppress the urge to touch a hot stove with his hand. Having no name for what we were witnessing, we were scared and perplexed. And he says, and I watched Joel. I struggled with guilt. I wondered, is this something I, his father, have done to him? Of all our kids, Joel was the one I most often lost my temper with. Like his dad, he could be maddeningly, uh, strongly bullheaded. (laughs) and combative. And he was articulate beyond his years, and his words often were piercing and inflammatory. Words have great power in our household. I had frequently reacted to his words with intense words of my own, over and over in minute detail. I replayed mentally every confrontation I had ever had with with, uh, uh, Joel. He said, guilt and remorse pounded at me. And he said, Joel was scared too. Joel went one night, he said, look, I know I'm not doing this. I'm out of control. And I, and I know Jesus isn't doing this. And, and he concluded that just maybe he was demon-possessed. And when Loretta, he said this to his mother, Loretta, and when she told Ben what he said, he said, we held each other in quiet terror. And slipped to our knees in the living room to pray. Our son was being taken away from us, and we didn't know by what or who or how. And he said, the worst came when I went on a three-day retreat at a desert monastery in Los Angeles. He said, "I, I hardly slept the night before, and I got up and took a walk. And he said, when I got back to my room 20 minutes before breakfast, he said, I sat down to read the scripture. He said, when I left home, I had impulsively grabbed a devotional book off my library shelf and put it in my bag. I hadn't used it for more than a year. And it was sitting on the table beside my bed that morning. So I grabbed it and opened it to the reading for that particular day. And the reading for that particular day was John chapter 9. And the first three verses that we read today, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? He said, "I." Ben said, I knew that kind of question well. He said, I asked it of myself daily with the tentative answer being, I sinned. I made my son this way. What I had not yet considered was Jesus' answer. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But if this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, Ben said, Patterson said, an extraordinary coincidence, that on the day I was struggling as bad as I'd ever struggled, that day's reading should be that. You'll never convince convince me it was coincidence. He said, Tears came. It was neither my sin nor his mother's sin nor Joel's sin, but God in his mysterious providence was going to do a greater work. God spoke, and everything that followed with Joel was confirmed, has confirmed what he said. It wasn't about my sin, but the work of God, His glory, and our growth in holiness, greater than we could ever imagine. He said that after that day, doors opened. They met the right people. Joel's Tourette's got diagnosed. And he said, I asked Joel if I could write about him in our struggle. And he said, absolutely, Dad. Joel has grown, grown into an extraordinary man. He has both physical health and intuitive sense of things, spiritual, that set him apart. Not in spite of his struggle, but because of it. Ben Patterson I don't, said, I don't just love him, I admire him. I want to be like him when I grow up. God's grace, he said, has been sufficient in countless ways. After we got a diagnosis and the word got out to the church... We found on our doorstep one morning a list of names written into time slots. It was a sign-up of church members who would pray for Joel at 15-minute intervals every Tuesday from 6 a.m. in the morning to 11 p.m. at night. In other words, the church said once a week, we are going to pray for Joel 15 hours straight. And they said that happened for years. What it meant for Joel and his spiritual development for the church was incalculable, he said. This side of eternity, we will never know its significance. All the sermons I preached on prayer did not have the effect on the prayer life of the church that Joel's Tourette syndrome did. The pastor became pastored by his own flock. Joel's symptoms have been manageable ever since. And he said, but we go into the future without fear. He said, because what we discovered during that time was that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is always sufficient. Ben and Loretta and Joel and that church saw God work. They saw and felt Christ's power displayed firsthand. They did not see a miracle like the blind man had received, but they received in some ways one that was absolutely equal to it. They saw God using all things, even their sons Tourette's, to bring good out of evil. You see, our God doesn't always protect us from things, but he always redeems things they saw God reinvigorate their own prayer lives so that Ben Patterson wrote the best book on prayer I have ever read. And it wouldn't have happened if this had not happened to his son. And they saw God reinvigorate their church. And a powerful prayer ministry came out of that church who touched many, many, many lives. And a ministry came out of that, a ministry to families suffering with children like theirs, with Tourette's and autism and other things. Back then, 30 years ago, they just, they, don't bug me. Anyway, you know, a ministry, because back then, people were embarrassed about this kind of stuff. People were kind of, you know, they didn't know what to do with it. And a ministry was born there. And they saw God redeem what they thought was totally unredeemable. You may not have noticed, but God glorifies Himself in many ways. Miracles come in all kinds of ways and shapes. And sometimes the greatest miracles come in the form of triumphant, redemptive suffering. It comes with the knowledge that God does not cause our pain. God does not give, let me make this real clear God does not give people cancer, God does not put people in car accidents. God doesn't give people Lou Gehrig's disease. James himself in the New Testament made it really clear. He said, our God is not the author of evil. When something bad to you happens, he said, do not blame it on God. But although God does not cause evil, God can use anything to display his glory and to work for our good. And by good, I don't mean our pleasure or comfort I mean our ultimate good, transformation into his likeness, freedom from our fears, a faith that can stand anything this fallen world and Satan throws at it, the expansion of our souls, the part that's going to live forever. Or do we assume Jesus loves only healthy, wealthy, good-looking, intelligent people with college degrees? Heaven's not going to be real crowded if that's what it takes. Remember Hebrews 11? Hebrews 11 says, tells about two very different results from faithfulness. We like the first result. Let me read it to you. In Hebrews 11, it says, I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames in the furnace, And escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength. And who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead. Raised to life again. That is what happened to people who were faithful. But the chapter doesn't end there. Let me give you the rest of the list of what happened to people who were faithful. There were others who were tortured. Refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. You see, you have to include all of the list. Everybody on that list was in the will of God. Were models of faithfulness. And they had entirely different circumstances surrounding them. You cannot judge God's heart by the circumstances you find yourself in. Because real faith sees God in both good times and bad, through blessings and tragedy. God is at work all the time in everything because faith is not just a way of living. It is a way of seeing. Faith gives us night vision, the ability to see in the dark, even in pain even when destitute. We say seeing is believing. The Bible says believing is seeing. What do we believe that helps us see in the dark? I like what Max Lucado wrote. He has a little card that he carries, and he says this, when times get rough, he reads this. God is still sovereign no matter what, no matter what it looks like. He still knows my name. Angels still respond to his call. The death of Jesus still saves souls. The Spirit of God still indwells saints. Heaven is still only a heartbeat away. The grave is still temporary housing. God is faithful. He is not caught off guard. He uses everything for His glory and my ultimate good. He uses tragedy to accomplish His will, and His will is holy and perfect. Sorrow may come with the night, but joy comes in the morning. In other words, God is good all the time. And all the time, he is at work in our lives. All the time, in life and death, in pain and joy, in sickness and health, in ease and tragedy, in all things, through all things, with all things, all will be redeemed to make us like Jesus. That is God's bottom line. You see, I, I kind of when I look at the Bible, I see kind of three categories of miracles, and I and there are a lot of people in this church who have experienced them. The first category is what God prevents from happening to us. I should have been dead, but I'm not. I was, I don't know how I got out of that. Somehow God got me out of that. And then the second kind of miracles are miracles I call deliverance and healing. In other words, I got cancer, but praise God, God healed me I got this disease, I got that disease. And by the miracle-working power of God, it is gone, and the doctors can't explain it. But there's a third category. And the third category is what I call the redemptive suffering category. In other words, God gives you the power to overcome suffering. And you know what? I got news for you. By far the most common category of miracles is the last one I mentioned. You know why? Because the day is coming when we all die. And the day is coming when time will run out and health will run out and there is nothing the doctors can do and every one of us will need the power to face our own deaths with Jesus Christ. That is a miracle every one of us will need before this is over. Fanny Crosby, the famous hymn writer, was blinded shortly after birth as a result of an accident. And she wrote many of the most cherished hymns of our faith, including Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. God grabbed her early. When she was eight, she said, I cannot see, but I am contented. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. Fanny Crosby had a beautiful spirit, a joyful spirit that she had until the age of 90, which was about twice as long as people lived in those days. What she was and what she did for the kingdom of God was no less a miracle than if God had come down from heaven and instantly restored her sight. Fanny Crosby's faith gave her sight that human eyes cannot see. She did not escape suffering. She did not escape blindness. Instead, she was given the power to overcome it by Jesus Christ. It is the miracle we will all need. There was a story told that when an old saint was dying and he was in great agony, he sent for his family saying, come because I want you to see how a Christian dies. That will be our final testimony. These are examples of triumphant, redemptive power with God working in us. It says Jesus spat on the ground and made some mud and put it in the blind man's eyes in those times it was thought that saliva had curative powers doctors did it Jesus put the mud on this man's eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam why send a blind man on such a trip this was not a short hike and it involved steps crowded streets elevation changes Imagine this man stumbling and bumbling through the streets of Jerusalem, asking stranger after stranger to give him directions with mud in his eyes. People must have gawked. But I believe this this trip the blind man went on was a part of the healing process too. It stretched this man's embryonic faith. It was showing a man who had been an invalid all his life that when Jesus gives you the power to do something, go do it. Jesus wanted something more for this man. Physical eyes can be healed instantaneously. Jesus could have foregone all of this process and just healed him right then and there. But he knew that spiritual sight involves a process. It takes one step of obedience after another to heal not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. Jesus cares so much about the process of faith building before he cares about the answer to our prayers. Sometimes before God gives us physical miracles, he stretches the spiritual parts of us first. Ben Patterson again writes, Why does God wait so long to answer my prayers? Wouldn't it be more efficient, even a greater sign of love, to answer them immediately? He said, I've come to see that this is precisely, it is precisely his love that makes me wait and keeps me coming To Him. Perhaps one reason God delays His answers to our prayers is because He knows we need to be with Him far more than we need the things we ask of Him. He said, I include myself among those people who've prayed for years for someone or something with no apparent answer or resolution. But we can say that as we prayed long and hard, we found something. We may not have been looking for, when we began to pray, something better than the thing we asked of God. We found his incomparable presence. The praying can often be greater than the things prayed for. He goes on to say, what happens when we persist in prayer? In the long term, we will see God's good and perfect will done. Or we will see our prayers answered better than we prayed them. I don't know about you, but a number of times I've seen God answer prayers better than I prayed them. Other wonderful things happen too. Our prayers get kicked up a notch. We are expanded spiritually as we keep praying in Christ's name. In doing so, we begin to see things more clearly as we learn to see things through His eyes instead of ours. And most important, he says, when we pray persistently, we get to be with God What happens to us while we pray is at least as important as the thing we pray for. The praying, he says, is often better than the thing asked for. It's true. Because, you see, God has a priority. Before any other thing, God wants to give you his best. And his best is Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to be here with us. The question is, do we want more of him or do we want simply more stuff or things to go our way? After the man washes the mud off his eyes, he sees. Can you imagine it? What wonder he must have felt as he came out of the pool and he looked up and saw the sky for the first time and saw birds above head. What must he have felt as he saw his mother and father's face for the first time? I'm sure he'd imagined for a lifetime what they must look like. And his friends, what must he have felt when he saw the temple, in Solomon's temple in all its glory, or Jerusalem itself, and the wonders he would see later? I wonder how much his first mountain thrilled him or his first view of the ocean or the Sea of Galilee. God still does miracles. I'm so glad God still does miracles. In fact, if we could look at them like that newly sighted man, I think we would see miracles all around us. This universe is a miracle. Do we have eyes to see? Jesus before he made his mud pack and applied it to the man's eyes, said this, Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus knew his death was coming and time was short. He knew it. Do we? Because truth—that that is the same truth for us. There are two realities most people ignore. The shortness of time here and the vastness of eternity that waits us. The final solution to human pain and injustice and sin and death is not coming in this fallen world. That is reserved for a new heaven and a new earth. One writer tells the story about a missionary who came to New York Harbor after a lifetime of work in the mission field. He was on the same ship with a man who would eventually become the president of the United States. That man's name was Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt at that time was a police commissioner of New York, and he was very popular. When the ship came into the harbor, there was a crowd waving banners, and a brass band was playing. And this missionary watched as Roosevelt was lifted onto the shoulders of the adoring crowd, to the sound of the band music and they went down a parade down through the middle of new york the missionary walked down the gangplank of the ship utterly by himself there was no one there waiting for him and the contrast the contrast made him feel dispirited and he prayed he said lord all these years i have served you in difficult places And when Roosevelt comes home, he is greeted by a cheering crowd and a band. When I come home, there is no one to greet me. No band, no nothing. And he heard a voice speak to him. And that voice said, child, you have miscalculated. You are not home yet. You see, we sometimes forget We get lost in the present. We get lost in time. We get lost in the world. Sometimes we forget, we are not home yet. Or we get too at home in this world as it is. One day, every prayer ever uttered by the children of God will be answered beyond our wildest dreams. One day, we will all be healed. One day, this planet will be redeemed One day, justice will roll down like a river. One day, these bodies that will fail us will be resurrected. All, and we will all be given a body with capacities we can scarcely imagine. These miracles await every child of God. Time does not heal all wounds, but heaven will. When we feel disappointed in some of the answers and and how things ended up in this world, let us remember the next world. The final answers are there, not here. You have to work that into the equation. What happens in this world is not the end of the story. Sometimes we keep score wrong. You know, it's like, it's, it's like there's a football game, and after one minute, somebody goes, Oh, well, this, uh, the, the first minute of the game is lost. All is lost. And you go, Wait a minute. You're just starting. We're, you have to figure into the equation that you have only been a minute into the game. Sometimes we get lost and we forget that w- this world and our time on it is but a nanosecond compared to eternity. You cannot calculate the final score in this world. You cannot sit down and say whether God was faithful or not or or God didn't listen or not. Not on this side because the final score comes there. The miracles that are coming, like resurrection and, and the redemption of the world, those are the miracles that really count. Those are the miracles with no time limit attached to them. Every miracle in this world done to our bodies, every miracle that, that, that made provision for finances, every miracle that, that helped us find, you know, what we needed to find. I got news for you. The effectiveness of those miracles end at the grave. The last miracles will not. Remember that when you are praying, every day you should remember that every prayer ultimately will be answered. Every desire of your heart ultimately one day will be filled, but it won't be in this world. And in the meantime, while we're traveling through a fallen planet Earth, God's guarantee is that Jesus will give us himself. Jesus will make all things work to the good of those that love him. Jesus will be walking and working in us and through us on this journey until the greater miracles comes. The good news today is that Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. If you get nothing else from Jesus, you still get his best because he still gives himself to us freely. That is our hope. Do I love it? When blind people are made to see you bet I love it do I love it when I hear stories of miraculous deliverance of course I do they are from God but folks one day that will not be enough one day we are going to have to cling to Jesus and know that he is clinging us to us harder before we get out of this world we will need the power of Jesus to get to the other side. And that is the bottom line. Not that life will be easy. Not that you get a miracle for every prayer. Not that, that you, know, uh, you know, we're going to you know, be blessed every step of the way and life is a big bowl of cherries. No, what we get promised is that no matter what life throws at us, Jesus is with us. And he can get us through anything and everything And that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. I'd like the intercessors to come forward and the worship team to come forward. And while they're coming, I'd like like to pray. Lord Jesus, there are people in this room who have diseases in their body, and they have prayed and prayed for those diseases to go. And they haven't and sometimes they have felt abandoned sometimes they have felt like you don't care anymore sometimes they wonder why are miracles for others and not for me Lord I pray that they will understand that your miracle working power is for them and if that doesn't deliver them then it will give them power over whatever they're fighting Help them, Lord Jesus. Help all of us in this life to cling to you tenaciously. And Lord, if we cling to you, it doesn't matter what life throws at us. We will be more than conquerors. We will be more than conquerors. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this final song?